my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live there in the ground his body darkness lay, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his, and he is mine. Precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry. To final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of death can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. I'm going to read from Psalm 139, verses 10, 11, and 12. It says, Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Would you bow your heads? Father God, we just praise you for the opportunity to come here to worship you and to hear your word preached, God. And we praise you for the fact that we have a church with a pastor who is so led to give us your word, not sugar-coated and unabashed. God, we just praise you for your word and for what it does. We praise you for the fact that you do hold us fast, that you will see everything through to completion. We praise you most of all for Christ. In this Christmas season, as we get closer to uh, Christmas, we remember the birth of Christ, God, but we, we should remember that all 12 months of the year, God, and we praise you for him coming here and dying for our sins. I pray that, uh, as always, that the words on the screen would not just be words we read that we just spew out of our mouths, but it would be truths that we know with our heart, God. 
And not just because it's fire insurance, but God, because we believe it and because it is true and because we have that relationship with you. We praise you in all things. In Christ's name, amen. When I fear my faith will fail Christ will hold me fast When the tempter would prevail He will hold me fast I could never keep my hold Through life's fearful path For my love is often cold he must hold me fast He will hold me fast He will hold me fast For my Savior loves me so He will hold me fast He saves are His delight Christ will hold me fast Precious in His holy sight He will hold me fast He'll not let my soul be lost His promises shall last But by Him at such a cost he will hold me fast He will hold me fast He will hold me fast For my Savior loves me so He will hold me fast For my life He bled and died Christ will hold me fast Justice has been satisfied He will hold me fast Raised with Him to endless life He will hold me fast Till our faith is turned aside when he comes at last He will hold me fast He will hold me fast For my Savior loves me so He will hold me fast He will hold me fast He will hold me fast for my Savior loves me so he will hold me fast you may be seated as you're being seated this morning before our ushers come and our children are dismissed for children's church uh, I want to remind you in your bulletins, I, I didn't call attention to it earlier, but you can be prepared anytime this month. You may not be this morning, but as a Southern Baptist church, we support missionaries through our International Mission Board. And through the International Mission Board, we put more missionaries on the international mission field than any other Protestant denomination. And so we've met some of these missionaries, some we've met in Bosnia. And they're there making Christ known uh, on a daily basis. And the only way they can stay there is by being supported financially through our giving. And so once a year, there's a special offering named in honor of a Southern Baptist missionary named Lottie Moon who served in China. And 100% of that offering is used to support our missionaries on the international mission field. So if you feel led any time this month to give, you can use the envelope that's here or designate a check to IMB, the International Mission Board, or Lottie Moon, and we'll make sure that that, that money gets there, okay? Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and our children be dismissed for children's churches or ushers come. Father, I thank you again for the gospel, this good news that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You will hold us fast 
Those whom you've called will be glorified. Your promises will not end. Lord, they are eternal. And so we thank you for this good news, this solid ground that we stand on. All other ground is sinking sand. So Father, as we've come this morning, thank you that we can be reminded of truth, of, of eternity. And Father, we know that there's many in our community that, that have not embraced the gospel and there's many in the world that haven't and many who have not even heard it. So Father, we pray that you would use our, our giving this morning so that the, the ministries of the church could continue and, and Lord, that we could also support missionaries both in North America and also in the international mission field. Lord, so lead us in how we give this morning and use it to extend your kingdom. We ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks, Miss Leah. You did a wonderful job for us this morning. And this morning I had the opportunity to, to teach the youth Sunday school class I'm in for the next few weeks. And, and uh, there's about 20 or 21 teens, maybe some preteens in there too. And, uh, you know, church, we really are blessed with a lot of wonderful young people in our church. Wouldn't you agree with that? And, uh, and, and kids and just, just so many opportunities to, to disciple and, and uh, a generation for the future to really impact this area and throughout the world, wherever God might lead them. So, so I'm just reminded of that this morning and wanted to share it with you. But would you take your Bible with me and turn to Matthew chapter 22? Matthew chapter 22. And as you're turning, if you don't have a Bible with you, first of all, you can find one underneath the chair you're sitting in or one close to you. But let's stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word together this morning. Matthew chapter 22, and I'll begin reading at verse 15. Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 15. 
Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anybody's opinion. If you're not swayed by appearances, tell us then what do you, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness in the inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Verse 23. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You're wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Let's pray together again. Thank you, Father, for your word that we have access to, to read together. We ask, God, that you would do in us what you can only do, Lord, and to stir up our hearts and affections for you, to refocus us upon things that are eternal. To put us in a place of in awe of our Savior and to know that the things that we do to follow Him and serve Him are not in vain. Encourage your flock. Convict us and lead us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. I've never been one to want to debate with people about things and kind of avoided it. And so that's just not my personality, but have often, because of my calling on my life, found myself in those positions. But most of us know what it's like to, to be in the debate with someone else. And perhaps you've even served on a debate team or something like that. I've not done that. But there are some pretty effective debaters out there. Sometimes you run into people who are extremely intelligent and... Uh, they uh, will not admit that you have a point to what you're saying and they'll keep, kind of keep after you and you just can't uh, hang with them. I mean, they're just hard to, to uh, talk with. And, and so those, you kind of want to avoid those kind of conversations and those kind of debates because there are some people like that. And Jesus is not one of those people. And you might say, well, preacher, what do you mean? I don't mean that Jesus is not an effective debater. But what I mean is Jesus is in a category all by himself. Jesus is not someone you would ever want to get into debate with or ask questions to or ask challenging questions of. 
because there's no one like Jesus because Jesus is the Lord. In the title of this message this morning, I've titled it, Man's Futile Debate with God because that's exactly what's happening in the text. You got Sadducees, you got Pharisees, you got a lawyer sent from the Pharisees and all of them coming up asking Jesus questions to test him, to try to trap him in his words because they want to prove that he's nothing more than a real good debater. He's nothing more than a real good teacher. He's nothing more, this Jesus, than a rabbi. So quit hollering out in the temple like they had just been hollering out in the streets and the children had been crying out in the temple, Hosanna, son of David, quit doing that. He's nothing more than a rabbi, so let's trap him in his words and prove that he's nothing more than a rabbi. You see, the children have been crying out in the temple, Hosanna, son of David, and they come up and ask Jesus a question to try to trap him in his words in Matthew chapter 21. And they asked him about John the Baptist, or he, he asked them about John the Baptist when they began to ask him about his authority. And Jesus said, well, I'll tell you, is John the Baptist's authority from heaven or from men? And so they huddled up and they got together. And they said, if we say this, it'll say, why didn't you believe him? If we say he's from man, then they'll stone us because they said he was a prophet. And so they go back to Jesus and they say, we don't know. They just kind of chicken out. They don't give him an answer. And so Jesus gives three parables. And in those parables, he says basically that these religious leaders who have leaves but no fruit, that they are going to be judged by God. And so we come again here in this verse, in, in verse uh, chapter 22, beginning of verse 15. And I want you to see the Pharisees, they're huddling up again. All right, they're saying, well... That didn't work. We need to call another play. Huddle up, guys. So the Pharisees, you see them, they're huddling up. And there's four scenes in this text I want to seek to walk you through this morning so that we can see that man's debate with God is futile. It's a waste. We need to repent and turn to Christ. That's what they needed to do. And we as Christians need to be encouraged by what we see in this passage of Scripture. So, so we see them huddling up again. Scene one, the Pharisees' pitiful plot. Notice in verse 15, the Pharisees went... It says, and plotted how to entangle him in his words. So we see right off the get-go, and later he calls them hypocrites in this same passage, that Jesus knows what, he knows what they're up to, and we can see what they're up to. They're wanting to test him, to trap him in his words. And so notice they flatter him in verse 16 and say nice things about it, and they bring, bring along some of the Herodians. Who were those Herodians? They were some of the Jews who, who kind of favored Herod. The, the Jewish person that was in charge from Rome. And so they, they favored Herod's rule. And so they sent some of the Herodians because this is what they want to do. Trap him in his words. Get him to say something that would get him in trouble with the Romans, these Herodians, so that he would make himself out to be a king who's trying to usurp the Caesar. Or get him in trouble with the, with the rest of the Jews uh, by getting to say something that he's more faithful to Caesar than he is to God or something like that. So they say, hey, who are you supposed to pay your taxes to? Is it lawful to pay taxes? This is their plot to try to trap him in his words. How's Jesus going to answer that? He says, well, give me a coin. Whose inscription do you see on it? Caesar's. And what's he say? You've heard this passage a few times probably. He says, give Caesar what Caesar's and give God. If you look in verse 20, uh, 21, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the God the things that are God's. Now, how did the crowd respond to that? Are you looking in your Bible in verse 22? Well, they marveled at it because he, he did not fall for their trap. But instead, he shut them up. And it teaches us something here really quick about the kingdom of God. He's, he's saying is this. He's not coming to usurp the authority of the Roman emperor which was Tiberius at the time. His kingdom, once he, leave, he leaves and ascends back into heaven and the church is being founded and built upon the rock and being established, this church is not going to become a kingdom in and of itself where there's no political entities ruling over it. In other words, their vision of the Messiah coming to be king and putting, putting the Messiah upon the throne and getting rid of the Romans, that's not going to come about. They're going to continue to pay taxes to Caesar. They're going to continue to have governments ruling over them, like Romans 13 says, that are instituted by God. And so one principle for us real quick right here is this. While we live in two kingdoms, you see, we're part of the kingdom of God, amen, but we're also part of the kingdom of man where we have rulers ruling over us. So while we live in two kingdoms, our allegiance 
is to one king. So he says, yeah, pay your taxes. But when we read in other places of scripture, we see that we're supposed to, we're supposed to be obedient and submit ourselves to the governments over us, even wicked governments. But our allegiance is to the king. And so there'll come times when we're paying our taxes. Now, can you imagine how the tax money was being used in the Roman Empire? What kind of wicked things are being done with this tax money? When they're pagan temples and so forth? And you think about our own tax money and how sometimes it's being paid to Illinois or federal government and how it's being used for wicked purposes like funding abortions and all this nonsense. But yet, Jesus said, pay your taxes. And yet, we're supposed to pay our taxes. But that does not mean that in showing our allegiance to the one true king that we don't stand up and we say, we're going to pay our taxes. We're going to tell you we're not happy about it. And we're going to vote you out of office if you keep trying to fund abortions and doing all this nonsense that's going against Scripture. We're going to say, we're going to pay our taxes because we're going to do what Scripture says to do and we're going to obey the government, but we are not going to be silent about it. We're going, to, we're going to stand up and say this is wrong. And if you try to shut us up, we're not going to be silent because the scripture says we can't be silent. We must obey God rather than men. So we see one principle here for us is while we live in two kingdoms, our allegiance is to one king. Then there's a second scene. The Sadducees want to give it a try. They fail with the Pharisees again. The Pharisees fail. So the Sadducees, you see the Sadducees' sad scenario in verse 33. Look at your Bible. It's verse 23, excuse me. The same day Sadducees came to him. So the same day, right? Pharisees mess up. Sadducees, you can just see them. Sadducees, Pharisees, kind of like Republicans, Democrats almost. Not really, but you can just see them sitting over there and they're, yeah, Pharisees, they failed. Sadducees, our turn. Sadducees go up to him and you see their sad question because the Sadducees are sad, you see. They don't believe that there's a resurrection. They don't believe, not only do they, they not believe in a bodily resurrection, they just believe this is life and that's it. They don't believe in angels either, by the way, which is interesting and part of Jesus' response. That's what the Sadducees believed. They were Jews, they believed in God, and it was basically just your best life now because there's not one later at all. And so the Sadducees come up to him and they ask him a question based on the Old Testament. An Old Testament law that said if a man had a wife and, and he died and they didn't have any children and he had brothers, that the brother, I guess it'd be the oldest first, would, would marry her, be required to marry her, so that that brother would have children by his wife. And if that brother died, then another brother had to marry. So they bring up this scenario. Y'all understand the situation now? Brother dies, the other brother has to marry that wife. Maybe he already got a wife, but that's what the law said to do. Other brother marries her. And so they say, okay, so here's this guy, Jesus. Let's just give you a scenario. Here's a sad scenario for you. Here's this, here's this guy, he's married, uh, and he dies, but he ain't got no children. His brother marries her. He dies, and they don't have children. And this happens seven times. And they don't ever have any children. So when they go to heaven, because after all, you believe there's a heaven and we don't. So when the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Ah, oh, we got him trapped now. And why does Jesus reply to that? What's your Bible say? Well, let's look at the Bible and see what it says. If you look on down in verse 29, Jesus answered them, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. What's Jesus saying? First of all, he's saying what you're saying and what you believe about the resurrection is wrong because it's, you don't know the scriptures. You don't know your Bible. This comes up several times with the religious leaders who are supposed to know the scripture. First of all, you're, what you're proposing about there being no resurrection is wrong to begin with. You don't know the scriptures. But neither do you know the power of God. Now, why does he say that? Well, of course, the, by the power of God, we're going to be resurrected. But notice he says in verse 30, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So what Jesus is saying is this. The Sadducees assume that what Jesus believes about there being a resurrection and an afterlife, eternity, is that things there will be exactly the same as they are here. And that's not true, because he, what's he say? In heaven, things are going to be different. There's not going to be any marriages in heaven. That's what he says. And so 
What we need to take as a principle from this, first of all, is remind us, and it should encourage us. Things are gonna be a lot different in heaven, amen? And we read another place in the scripture and see just how gloriously different it's gonna be. Now, I can see how somebody would read these verses about not being marriage in heaven, and that might trouble them. But this is not meant to trouble us. It's actually meant to encourage us. Some people have been through some horrible marriages. Or maybe your marriage right now is just in shambles. It is a mess. It's not what God wants to be. And you're, you're weeping over it. Maybe your spouse has died and you had a wonderful marriage of, of bliss most of the time it seems. And you long for that and miss it. What does it tell us about heaven? There is no marriages. If marriage, if a perfect marriage makes us complete, then you would expect there to be marriage in heaven. But there's not. A perfect marriage does not make one complete. There's a relationship with Jesus Christ that surpasses the bliss of any good marriage that there's ever been on the face of this earth. There are no marriages in heaven because the relationship that we're going to enjoy with the Lord far surpasses anything that we could enjoy here on the earth. Amen? It should encourage you if you're a never married person or an unmarried person who wants to be married or have that kind of joy and relationship again. It should encourage you that, that you to pursue your relationship with Christ more than anything else and know, and know that the joy that awaits you in heaven so far surpasses anything that any married person would have enjoyed here on earth. Life will be different in eternity. So you see the Sadducee's sad scenario. He says to them, you don't know the scriptures. You've not read about Moses and he's the God of Moses and Abraham. This was said later on and after they had died. He's the God of the living and not of the dead. And so Jesus puts them, he silences them. Notice it says in verse 41, now while the Pharisees were gathered, or excuse me, in verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So they huddle. The Pharisees see the Sadducees messing up. They're like, yeah, they're messing up. We don't like them anyway, but still our problem is, is we've not trumped him yet. We've not, we've not entangled him in his words yet and got him in trouble with either the people or the Romans. So they huddle up again. Now what do we do now? Well, let's get, let's get one of our lawyers, one of our experts in the law, and let's send him. So we've seen the Pharisees' pitiful plot. We've seen the Sadducees' sad scenario. In scene three, we see the lawyer's legal examination. You notice in your Bible, he sent to question him in verse 40, or excuse me, verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. He's not trying to find out real answers, is he? And it's the same for all these questions. Their motivation is simply to trap him in his words. They think they know everything already, and they're not humble. So they send this lawyer to, to test him. And teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus simply does this. He, he quotes from a passage in Leviticus and a passage in Deuteronomy. And he doesn't say one sin's bigger than another or anything like that because that would entangle him in his words and cause a debate. But what he does is he summarizes it all up. It's probably never been summarized for them this way before because they would have known this already. But basically it's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. A second's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you're loving God with all your heart, then you're going to want to serve him. You're going to want to worship him. You're not going to want to put idols in front of him. If you love your brother, love your neighbors yourself, you're not going to murder them. You're not going to uh, hate them in your heart, right? You're not going to cheat, at, cheat and have adultery with their wives or cheat on your own wife, right? You're, you're going to love your neighbor by not stealing. So it's all summarized up in love. So love doesn't, it's not like, oh, just love and don't worry about obeying God's word. Folks, that's not what it's saying. But it's saying that love from, from, these, from love flows all these laws. If you, if you love God and you love your neighbor, you're going to do these things. Authentic discipleship is characterized by love. And this flatly confronts the religious hypocrites that are asking him all these questions because they're not authentic in their discipleship. They have a religion that, ex, that is external. They, they would... To put it in our own terms in our day, they show up to church, they look like they know everything, they, they, they say the right things, they go through the, the right motions, but inside, they don't really love God. And they don't really love other people. They love themselves. They want to look good. And they're trusting in themselves to get them to heaven, and they do not want to repent and follow Christ. So we see the Pharisees' pitiful plot and the Sadducees' sad scenario and the lawyer's legal examination, and this is where it gets really good. There's another huddle up. 
Watch them huddle up again in verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, you see them huddled up again for the fourth time? Pharisees huddled up. They're getting ready to throw something else at them. And this time Jesus breaks the huddle. He says, all right, y'all just come over here. Let me ask you a question. Just break it up. Let me ask you a question now. And Jesus' question is going to get right at what they're trying to get at, which is proof that he's not the son of David, that he's just another rabbi. So scene four, we see our Savior silencing the skeptics. I love it. Jesus says to him, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And of course they answer correctly because they know the scripture. In this part of it anyway, it's been prophesied that the, the promised king is the son of David, of descendant of David. And so that's what they say at the end of verse 42. He's the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? And then he quotes from Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm from the, in the New Testament, from uh, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Verse 44 contains part of it. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse 45, look at it. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? How is it that a father or grandfather, for that matter, would say to their grandson or to their great-great-great-great-grandson, they would say to their son even, you're my Lord. How would this person who should have authority over him say to somebody else who they have authority over, you're the Lord. And notice he says, the Lord said to the Lord, sit at my right hand. And another, it says, in verse uh, 43, he said, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? <laughs> David is not being led astray here. He's in the spirit, led by the spirit to say about his descendant someday that's coming to be king. He's saying, he's the Lord. How is it that this can be? That the father or grandfather, great-grandfather would say to his great-grand-descendant, you're the Lord. And what do they say? Nothing. Look at it, verse 46. No one's able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Don't you love it? It's our Savior silencing the Pharisees. He just silenced the Sadducees. They're coming to him. They're in this futile debate, not with just a great prophet, not just with a great rabbi. They're in a debate with the Lord, with God. What's all this mean for, for us right here this morning? When you look at verse 26, or excuse me, verse 46, it says, no one was able to answer him a word, nor they ask him any more questions. You see him silencing the skeptics here, right? He's silencing them. Silencing them. It's got a lot of syllables for me. One of the things we notice here just looking at these verses, is Jesus is the son of David. He is the son of David. Yet he's more than the son of David. Jesus is the son of David, yet he's also the son of God. And that's what they don't see. That's what they've not gotten themselves to here. He is the son of David. He's also the son of God. He is also the Lord. He's more than the son of David. And that's what the Old Testament Psalms said. But they're so hardened that they don't realize who it is they're in debate with here. They're in debate with God in the flesh. As some of you are this morning who've not yet submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, your debate is with God and it is futile and you will lose. So repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you look at verse 46 and you see the silencing of the skeptics, look back with me in chapter 21, verse 15. What are the skeptics not wanting to be said of David, or excuse me, of Jesus? They don't want people to say that he's the son of David. They just want him to say, people to say, he's just a great rabbi, but he's not the son of David, the promised Messiah. Look back and so, but Jesus silences them. He answers in such a way that shuts them up. But look in chapter 21, verse 15. 
When he was in the temple prior to this big debate that was going on, the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, son of David. And they're, they're upset about it. It says they were indignant. The religious leaders were. Now, Jesus turned around to the children who were saying, Hosanna, son of David, and he said, quiet. Be quiet. Don't call me son of David anymore. Is that right? No. He didn't silence them. So you got into chapter 22, verse 46, Pharisees are saying, Sadducees are saying, lawyers saying, he's not the son of David, and he shuts them up. Children crying out the temple, he is the son of David, and he doesn't shut them up. They are right to say that he's the son of David. And this is the point. We, right here, right now, in 2019, we are right not to be silent about who Jesus is. We are right to say that he's the king. Matthew's audience is right to say he's the king, even though people around him are saying he's not. The Pharisees were silenced, the children were not silenced, and we should not be silent either. In fact, we should be specific about who he is, that Jesus is Lord. It's interesting that often, if you talk to Jewish people today, often their problem is more with Paul, the Apostle Paul, than it is with Jesus. Of course, they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, but the reason they really don't like Paul is because Paul was one of them. Paul was not only a Jew, as Jesus was a Jew, but Paul was a religious leader. And Paul turned on them. Paul went from hauling people off to prison that believed in Jesus to proclaiming that Jesus is the son of David. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 4 that Paul wrote. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship. So Paul himself, a religious leader, was converted and proclaims that Jesus is Lord. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 5, he says these amazing things about the Lord Jesus. Romans chapter 9, verse 5 says this, To them to the Jews, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. So we must be silent. No, we must not be silent. We must tell people who Jesus is, but I don't know that the children in the synagogue or the people on the streets right prior to that, when they said son of David, they really understood he was also the son of God. In fact, some of them may have been crying out, crucify him, crucify him, just a few days later. But I do know this. When we cry out he's the son of David, we need to tell him he's more than the son of David, that he is the son of God. And then explain what that implies for their life, or not just implies, but commands of their life, that they repent of their sins and follow the Son of the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we must not be silent. So I want you to just think for a moment this morning. In your head and in your imagination, perhaps, you see Jesus riding on the donkey on his way to Jerusalem prior to this in chapter 21. It's Palm Sunday. He's riding on his way to Jerusalem. Here he comes, and you see the crowd gathered, and you hear the crowd shouting, Hosanna, Son of David! You hear the children in the temple, see the blind and the lame coming and being healed. You hear the children in the temple right after that, Hosanna, son of David. You see him in the temple now answering their questions. You hear their answer, crickets. <laughs> they can't say anything, it's silence. You see Matthew's audience, within 50 years, this was written and they're reading this. You see Matthew's audience, meeting in their homes, increasingly being ostracized by the Roman government and by Jewish leaders. But do you hear their worship in their homes as they're praising Jesus despite what their religious leaders say and what the Romans say not to do? They're praising Jesus. They are right not to be silent. He is the son of David and he's more than the son of David. 
Do you see the, in Matthew's audience in the early church, you see them sneaking out at night to go meet in one another's homes so they can read these words we're reading openly and freely this morning? Matthew's letter, Matthew's writings. Do you see them sitting there, huddled around a candle, reading these words? They are right to do so, so they can proclaim that Jesus is Lord. They are right not to be silent. So we think of the Pharisees' pitiful plot to try to put us in conflict with government. We're reminded, if the government says, don't do this, and the Bible says, do it, then we are right to say we must obey God rather than men. We are right not to be silent. When the Sadducees come along and say there's no afterlife, nothing eternal, life is just here, we are right not to just caught up, get caught up in the rat race of life, trying to build our own little kingdom. We are right to seek first the kingdom of God and make it a priority to make disciples. And we think of the, Pharisee, the, the, the lawyer's legal examination of Jesus who, who wants to, deduce, who, to reduce following God to external Christianity, to, to external righteousness. We are right to be concerned about truly loving God and loving our neighbors ourselves so they might ask the reason for the hope that's in us and we might say and not be silent, Jesus is Lord and that's why I love God and love neighbor. You see us sitting here in these chairs this morning to take a look at this room right now this morning. You got up this morning and you brought your kids to church, got out of bed, or you struggled yourself to get out of bed. You came to church to proclaim with your brothers and sisters that Jesus is Lord, you are right to do so. When you invited somebody to church this week, and you weren't silent and you invited them to church, you were right to do so. This morning I prayed that God would give me an opportunity to talk to somebody about the Lord before church started. and So I went somewhere this morning and found somebody. <laughs> and, uh, Part of me knows like, I don't really want to do this. But I just prayed, Lord, just, just give me the opportunity. And I got to share with somebody. And, uh, and they're not, not a Christian. It doesn't sound like at all. But, but they were very receptive and open. And it was a good conversation. And uh, the old devil didn't want me to say anything, you know. He wanted me to keep my mouth shut. But when we open up our mouths and talk to people about Jesus, we are right not to be silent. When the early church did that, they were right not to be silent. As a church family, one of the things that we're going to be talking more about in the next couple months is a kind of a strategy to saturate this area with the gospel called Everyone Hears. And what we want to do literally is we want to see too as a church that every single man, woman, boy, and girl have multiple opportunities to hear the gospel in our area. We don't want to leave any stone unturned, any person without having heard the gospel. And as we seek to do that as a church family, we're right to do so. We're right not to be silent. When you prepared your Sunday school lesson this morning, when you gave money to missions so that others can proclaim that Jesus is Lord, when you pass out Christmas invite cards and keep on serving in the ministry even when you don't see fruit, you're right to do so. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And as you're sitting here this morning and you hear this message and you're confronted by the fact that you're a sinner and you need to turn from your sins and follow the Lord Jesus Christ and call upon the Lord for salvation, then you would be right not to be silent and call upon him and be saved. And we would encourage you. In fact, we'd plead with you. Call upon the Lord. Don't be silent. Call upon the Lord. Admit that you're a sinner. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we praise you, God, that you have come to this earth and in your sovereignty and your wisdom, Lord, you have shown that your promises have been fulfilled, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Father, I pray that we would be encouraged to continue to persevere, Lord, and to do the things that you've put in front of us to do, Lord, on a daily basis whether we're at work or school or wherever, right on our mission fields, to continue to live out the gospel with the intent to talk about the gospel. Lord, help us not to be silent. Lord, help us to even be precise and specific about who this Jesus is. 
Lord, even when people think we're foolish or they look at us funny or whatever it might be, Lord, help us to be reminded that we are, we are right to not be silent. So, Lord, help us to be more intentional this week. Help us to be intentional how we use social media or, or in our individual conversations with people or whatever it is. Lord, help us to be intentional. Tell others about what Christ has done to make disciples of all nations. And Lord, we pray this morning for the person that's here who's not a Christian, who's not been born again. Father, we pray that you'd show them their, their sinful condition before you and show them that they need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ once and for all. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be standing up here at the front this morning like I always do and would love to talk with you or pray with you about anything at all or how the Lord might be working in your heart. So as we sing and stand, stand together to sing right now, you're welcome to come and pray with me or pray at this, these steps here by yourself. You do as the Lord leads. Let's stand together and sing. My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain. Who plumbed the depths of my disgrace And gave me life again Who crushed my curse of sinfulness And clothed me with His light And wrote His law of righteousness With power upon my heart my heart is filled with thankfulness to him who walks beside but who floods my weaknesses with strength and causes fears to fly whose every promise is enough for every step I take sustaining me with arms of love and crowning me with grace my heart is filled with thankfulness to him who reigns above whose wisdom is my perfect peace whose every thought is love for every day I have on earth is given by the King so I will give my life my all to love and follow so I will give my life my all to love and follow him for being here this morning it's been a blessing to be in the house of the Lord and uh, my prayer is Brandon as you come to close us in prayer this morning that we'll leave this place ready to go out and, and not be silent folks that's the main thing that that God has called the church to do is to make disciples of all nations. And so as we're enjoying all the good gifts and our hearts are filled with thankfulness for what he's done, let it overflow in telling others why we're thankful and, and what we're most thankful for is what Christ has done in us. I'll be standing at the back doors and I love a chance to meet with you or talk with you, pray with you, whatever it is. So be sure and take advantage of that. Take advantage of me. I'm glad to be taken advantage of. All right. Brother Brandon, you coming close to some prayer? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful, uh, thankful for what you did on the cross through Jesus Christ, Lord. I pray that we would find our hope and our joy in that, um, in this season and, and all the time, Lord, that our joy would overflow on those around us, Lord, that they would ask us why we have this joy um, amidst pain and suffering. Um, Lord, I pray now and for just these weeks to come uh, in this Christmas season, uh, the time for people to be I think more receptive uh, to the gospel, Lord. Um, they're excited about Christmas, but help us to explain what Christmas really is, Lord. Um, that Jesus, you sent him down um, to pay the price that we couldn't pay, Lord. To 
to live a life we couldn't live, to die for our sins. Lord, help us to be explicit about that, um, that we would be bold to invite them to come to church, to, to come to our Christmas um, gatherings, Lord, but help us to be clear in the gospel that we wouldn't just leave it at coming to church, Lord, that we would tell them why we come to church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.